Our scripture today is from the Gospel of John, chapter 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. And Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been placed on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw, and he believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, good morning to all of you. I am Jeff Schultz, one of the lead pastors here at Faith Church, and we're so glad that you are here to worship with us on this day, especially of all Sundays. The text that Bob just read for us is really the heart of the Easter message, that Christ is risen, he is risen indeed. In fact, all the way back from the very first Easter, almost 2,000 years ago, it's been a greeting that Christians have shared with one another, almost like a, a cheer or a chant on this Sunday. Someone would say, Christ is risen, and the response would be, He is risen indeed. Can we do that? Christ is risen. He is risen. Oh, hallelujah. I was struck again looking at this text over this past week and, and hearing it again this morning about how much running there is in this passage. Did you notice that? Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb and she goes running back to tell the other disciples, uh, Peter and John. And then the two of them take off to go to the tomb and they run to get there. And then, and then Peter, probably out of breath, rushes past John into the tomb to, to see what's gone on. Peter and uh, John are just uh, racing. Mary is racing. It's, it's almost kind of a, a breathless text. And that makes it really kind of unusual. What is it that, that sets their feet to moving this way? Because you really don't see a lot of running in the Bible, if you think about it. In fact, if you, you know the story of the prodigal son, uh, this, this wayward child who goes off and wastes his father's inheritance and doubts that he has a place back home, he he comes to his senses, and he, and he starts to head back home. And when the father sees him, he gathers up his tunic, and he runs out to go greet his son. And it stands out because it's so unusual. In that culture, that was considered undignified. You, you don't go running in public if you're a respectful adult. But in this paragraph, everyone seems to be sprinting, and, and their feet pounding up and down. Why all this running? And why, of all places, in a cemetery? You know, we don't go running through cemeteries, do we? If you ever go to a graveyard, we're kind of 
quiet and reverent. And, and you walk carefully, almost like you know, maybe it's a minefield. We're, we're maybe a little scared to be there. You don't see people running through the tombstones. There's no Nora Fun Run you know, through, through the graveyard. I see people running you know, in the mornings in my community, uh, but, but they're not usually smiling or happy like the people in this passage. Uh, mostly their faces are kind of etched with pain and, and grimacing. You see people in treadmills on the gym. By the way, uh, treadmills were invented as a punishment in British prisons in the 1800s. You, you can look that up. And so people look really serious, you know, we're trying hard to get our heart rate up and our waistline down, and they don't look like they're having a lot of fun. People run at work, right? We have too much to do and too little time, and maybe we're overcommitted and, and overstressed. I've seen people running from gate 1A to gate 16B at the airport in five minutes. I've been one of those people, and that is not a lot of fun. You see parents running around through neighborhoods, mom taking kids from school to soccer practice to violin rehearsals, and, and I've seen people run in fear or concern, but you don't see many people running just for sheer joy, except kids. We have a, an elementary school next door to us here, and if you turn kids loose at recess and, and there's no rules or restrictions, they take off running. Not because they're afraid, not because they're scared, not because they're busy. They go running just for the sheer pleasure of being alive. It's this joy of, of freedom that, that just expresses itself in, in running for pleasure. And that's the spirit, almost, of Easter in this passage. The people that we read about, that we just heard about in John's narrative. They're scarred, they're scared, they're wounded, they're tired and stressed and beaten down and hopeless, frankly. And yet suddenly they're set free and they take off running. What is it about the Easter story, this message that sends people running with joy and with hope? Because when the sun comes up on Easter morning, it, it dawns on people in different places, right? I mean, just like the, the people whose stories that we hear about in this passage, we're all coming to this Easter morning in different places. Our stories are not identical to each other. And, and what I want us to see, what we're going to see this morning is how God knows that. God knows that we're all in different places, and, and he speaks to all of us in our different circumstances we're going to see how through these people, God speaks into our lives to stir our hearts, to set our feet moving. We're going to see how God can bring life from death. Let's look at this passage together. I love this phrase. Did you get this? The disciple that Jesus loved. Wouldn't that be a great nickname to have? I had some nicknames when I was growing up, some of which I will not want to share with you all, that other people gave to me. Now, this disciple is not actually named, but we understand from tradition that this is actually the writer of this gospel, the Apostle John. He was one of Jesus' closest followers. He was in the inner circle with Peter and James. 
He walked all over Palestine with Jesus. He was there on the mountain when Jesus' appearance was transfigured and he, and he shone with the glory of God. He was there at the Last Supper reclining against Jesus. He was there at the cross as he saw Jesus crucified. And now he's, he's in this foot race with Peter. They hear the news that the tomb is empty. They don't know more than that. And they're, they're racing through the cemetery to try and figure out what's going on. And John, maybe, probably because he's younger, he gets there ahead of Peter. And John gets to the tomb, and he doesn't go in immediately. Did you notice that? He just, he stands there, and he sees the linen cloths lying, but, but he doesn't enter. He just looks, and, and he sees the, the grave clothes there, almost like an empty cocoon. And, and Peter catches up, you know, probably out of breath, <laughs> And runs past him, and, and then John goes in. And it simply says, he saw and he believed. He believed. Isn't that great? John just sees the empty tomb, and he puts two and two together. He doesn't need to put his hand in Jesus' side or his, his fingers in the nail holes. He, he doesn't even need to see Jesus. He just sees the empty tomb, and he believes. And some of you here this morning respond to the resurrection with a simple, sincere faith. John didn't come thinking that Jesus was raised, but when he gets there and, and he sees the evidence, it doesn't take much. That no angelic messengers announcing the resurrection, it's just a whisper out of an empty tomb. And John believes. And, and some of you believe like this disciple believes, and, and that's awesome. Maybe you can't even remember a time that you didn't trust that Jesus was your Lord and your Savior. Even though it's, it's always a supernatural work of God when someone comes to faith in Christ, for you it just seemed natural. It, it makes sense. You don't struggle about your faith. You get up Easter morning and you say, well, of course he's risen. And it, and it all fits together for you. You don't understand maybe even why people would struggle to believe this good news because it's something that's just so obvious and so simple. Now, people who believe like that are not fools and they're not naive. They're not out of touch with reality. In fact, many of them have a faith that's been tested and tried and nurtured over time spent with Jesus. You know, if you think back to Jesus' interaction with people, there were people who wanted to follow Jesus until he started saying hard things. And there were people who were willing to follow Jesus as long as he provided bread and entertainment and healing. John saw people look for easy answers and, and end up missing Jesus. Some were intrigued with Jesus, but, but they balked when it came to giving up their stuff or taking up a cross and denying yourself to follow me. Judas followed Jesus until he realized that this was going to get hard and I could make some money off of the deal. John saw people love money and stuff and miss out on Jesus. And, and three of these men were part of Jesus' inner circle. But when things went badly, two of them ran away. They'd given up everything for Jesus, but they couldn't give up their fears. And John saw Peter and James run and miss the cross. 
where others saw a miracle work it or a meal ticket or maybe just a moral teacher, John saw a man that was worth giving up everything to follow. One man followed Jesus all the way to the cross. Only one. The women, of course, were the faithful ones. They're the ones who were there around the cross. And, and don't miss the fact that Mary Magdalene here, she is the first evangelist and missionary of Easter. She's the first one that goes and tells. John is the only man at the cross. All the others run away. And it's not unique to John's day. Too many men are choosing passivity or pleasure or self-protection over following Jesus. John stayed close. He witnessed everything. And hanging around with Jesus changed him. It had an impact on his life. Because he'd invested time in listening to Jesus and following Jesus and trusting Jesus. And, and when he sees the empty tomb, because of all of that time he's invested with Jesus, his response is a simple faith. Of course Jesus is alive. Didn't he raise Lazarus from the dead? Didn't he tell us he was going to rise? You can call it a simple faith, but it's a faith that was simple because it was nurtured over time spent with Jesus. And so maybe the question for us to ask ourselves is, who is it that I'm spending my time with? Who is it that I am listening to and trusting and following? Because the result of John doing that with Jesus was a simple faith. In all four of the Gospels, when the Easter story is told, the only person who believes simply from seeing the empty tomb is John. Peter walks in and he sees the same evidence. He sees the same empty tomb and the abandoned grave clothes. But Luke's Gospel tells us that Peter basically kind of went home scratching his head. Like, man, I, I don't know, don't know what, to, what do I do with this? How does this make any sense? He's confused. He, he sees the same things, but he has questions and he has doubts. And Peter has more than that, too. There's some of you this morning who are here, and, and you look around and you wonder, you know, everybody seems to be smiling and, and full of faith and full of joy and peace, and, and how do they get that? And why does it seem so hard for me? You might be thinking, maybe you're the only person that, that faith doesn't come simply or easily to. You have questions, you have things that, that you're not sure about. You're in this story too. Because some respond to the resurrection with a struggling faith. Faith is really a struggle for some people. Peter comes in, he, he sees the evidence, but come on, I mean, he's a fisherman. He's, he's a down-to-earth guy. He spent time on the docks and probably heard the crude jokes, and, and he probably curses sometimes. I mean, in, in fact, he did just a few hours ago when he called down God's judgment on himself if he had ever known Jesus or knew anything about the man. Curse me if I even know this Jesus, he said. And now beyond the evidence that makes him scratch his head, I, I think there's something else going on here. I think Peter is maybe realizing what he's done. There's guilt and shame and and he runs to the tomb, and he sees that it's empty, but Peter probably also knows, you know, when you're dead, you're dead. And there are people who put on uncomfortable Sunday shoes and come and uh, come to church and smile, and, and yet 
in their hearts, you're not sure. It's hard to make sense of all of it. You're, you're not sure that beyond death there's anything. Not for Jesus, not for you, not for anyone. Because your experience doesn't give you any evidence that it turns out differently for anyone else. You're here, maybe there's even a, a, a spark of hope, but you're just not sure. And believing is a struggle, and, and coming to faith is not easy or natural for you. Let this story of Peter encourage you. See, Jesus came back, he comes back especially for Peter. It's not here in this text, but Mark tells us that the uh, angel says to Mary Magdalene, go back and tell the disciples that he's gone ahead of you and tell Peter. Isn't that awesome? Make sure you tell Peter that Jesus has come back for him. Simon Peter had to have believed that if anybody has dropped off of God's invitation list, it's him. I will follow you all the way to death, Jesus. Peter, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster even crows. No, no, Lord, I never will. And of course he does. What do you do with that? What does that do to you when you blow it that badly? See, what happened to Jesus on the cross was terrible, but, but do you wonder if for Peter, seeing what he did was maybe even worse? Maybe, maybe he could have done something and he didn't. Maybe he could have been there at the cross with John and, and he wasn't because he ran away and he denied Jesus. Easter says Jesus is alive and he's alive especially for people who come with doubt and with guilt, especially for people who believe that he couldn't have come back or that Jesus wouldn't come back for them. And when he comes back, Jesus doesn't condemn Simon. He doesn't come back and say, I told you so. Remember, I told you you were going to do this, Peter. He doesn't beat him up. He says, Peter, I love you. I love you. And your doubts cannot defeat me. Your, your doubts can't stop me. Your failure isn't the end. And, and Peter, you cannot dig a hole so deep. You cannot run so far. Your doubts cannot be so great. Your denials cannot be so strong that, that I cannot still break through because I'm alive, Peter, and I'm greater than all of that. If death can't stop me, Peter, there's no way that you can. That's a good message to hear. But, but that good news dawns slowly on Peter. And maybe you approach Easter this morning with, with some shame or doubt. Maybe there's something whispering in your ear. You can't really believe all that, can you? Especially after what you've done? You think that, that there's a place in God's family for you? And Jesus comes and says, listen, no, your failures are not final. You have not blown it. You've not gone too far. Jesus says, I've come back for the very people who have doubted and who have denied and who have failed to say, I have a future for you. I have forgiveness for you. Do you believe? Do you believe? Because if you're doubting and skeptical, maybe that sense of failure has made it hard for you to run or to feel like there's anything worth running about. 
if you've come here only with a little faith or maybe with no faith and, and just a shred of hope, Jesus has come back for you in your failure and in your uncertainty. Christ is calling you. What is holding you back from trusting the risen Jesus? The final face in this Easter portrait is Mary of Magdala, a woman from whom Jesus had cast out seven demons. Now, whatever we make of that in our modern scientific age, the the Bible paints this as a reality for her. So just imagine what that would be like. Seven shackles of oppression and control suddenly lifted. What would that do to you? Would it set your feet to running? Would it set your heart to singing? I mean, Luke tells us that that she was numbered among Jesus' disciples, that she cared for him, she followed him, she ministered with him and for him and in his name, and that she was there at the cross, too. She was there when they took him down. And now she goes to the tomb to make sure that he's buried properly. See, Mary is not going to the grave to witness a resurrection. She's going there to grieve. She didn't go to get an Easter message. She went to mourn. And so, initially, Mary doesn't get Easter. Not because of guilt or doubt like Peter. She, she can't get Easter because of grief. And some people come to the resurrection with a sorrowing faith. Is that you? All this hallelujah and, and Christ is risen and celebration, maybe it's hard for you because... You just feel the weight of grief that you're carrying. Maybe there's a loved one that's died recently. And and the weight of it, the grief is still just so painfully in front of you right now. Maybe your job just died. Maybe your hopes for a job. Maybe it was a relationship that's ended and, and a dream that's gone with it. Maybe it's your health. You know, you thought if you ate enough kale and and ran enough that it would just go on forever, right? And then you get to a certain age and things just don't work like they're supposed to. Or maybe you've even gotten a scary diagnosis or you're just dealing with daily pain. Maybe it's the the first Easter, the first anniversary, the first birthday alone. You've been hurt by rejection and loneliness and it's hard to think that there could be hope or joy or reason to run or sing or smile. See, grief can, can cloud our vision. It can deaden our hearts. And even though the sun is already up, according to the other gospel writers, there seems to be this darkness inside Mary. Grief is like a shade pulled down over the window that won't let the sunlight come in. All she can see is that the body is missing. If you look a little forward into verses 11 to 16, Mary's weeping outside the tomb and and two angels are there. And and they're asking her, why are you weeping? And all she can say is, well, they've taken the body and I don't know where he is. And, And she turns around and she sees Jesus there, but she didn't even recognize him. 
Jesus is standing right in front of her, but her grief is so overwhelming. It doesn't even make, it doesn't even make sense to her. She thinks he's the gardener. She can't imagine that, that there could be any good news or any hope or any joy ever again. That's what grief and fear can be like, overwhelming. And, and she simply says, they've taken his body. Tell me what, what they've done with him. And yet, she's standing there talking to the very one that she's looking for. You may feel far from Christ because of the grief and the loneliness and the pain, but listen, he's here. He's here just like he was for Mary. And Mary can't see it until, until in verse 16, Jesus says to her, not a doctrinal statement, not, a, not an Easter affirmation. He says, Mary. Mary. Ten chapters earlier in this gospel, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and they know my voice, and they listen to me. Mary. Man, think how special our names are, aren't they? You go away on a, on a trip and you come home and, and you're tired and you open the door and your family is there and it's your name. It's, you hear your name and there's just Daddy or Jeff or, or Bob or whatever it is. And it, it just makes your heart come alive. A name. I mean, it, it could send you on a, a pilgrimage to a granite slab in Washington, D.C. to the Vietnam Memorial to run your fingers across the name of a friend or brother in arms or a brother or a son. Jesus knows your name. He knows you. He knows everything about you. He knows what it will take to unlock your heart and set you free. And Jesus has come back to tell you, you personally, that he has won that he is alive, that his life is greater than death, that joy is stronger than grief. What losses or griefs are you remembering today? Can you let Jesus speak into that grief with a word that says, I am greater, I am alive, that joy is stronger than grief, that that his life is greater than death, that, that he could bring comfort and encouragement and hope. Sin has entered the world and, and every one of us suffers as a result. Tornadoes, tsunamis, droughts, famine, malaria, cancer, greed, pride, lust, envy. It ruins everything. It, it ruins us. It ruins our relationships. It, it ruins the world. Because of sin, we hurt others. Others hurt us. And that's why we experience guilt and shame and brokenness and longing and why we are desperate to find some kind of a hope. And worst of all, it just seems like the only thing we know for sure is that we're going to die. We are like dead people walking through our own graveyards. 
And what is there for us? What do we do with that? You know, we can try and ignore it, push it off to the side, whistle as we walk past the tombstones. Maybe we make a joke out of it. Or maybe we just give in to despair or we look at it honestly and we just collapse under the weight of it. See, only God, only God can solve the problem. And that's exactly what he has done in Jesus Christ. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father in glory. He is the hope of the world. The hope that is fulfilled in the resurrection. If we do not have hope in Christ, what hope is there? British artist named Damien Hirst unveiled his latest work about 10 years ago, a platinum-covered human skull covered in diamonds. It was valued at $98 million. Here's what Hirst said about the art piece. I love that this work gives people hope. It shows that we're not going to give, we're not going to live forever, but it also gives a feeling of victory over death. Like, we do not need diamond-encrusted skulls to give us the feeling of victory over death. We need an actual victory over death. We don't need something that's going to make us feel better about the fact that we're going to die. We need somebody who can do something about the fact that we're going to die. That's what Easter is. That's what Jesus has done. Christ is risen. And if you trust in his resurrection, your sins are forgiven. Death is conquered. Hell is defeated. You are saved. You are righteous. You are blameless. You are alive. And that good news goes all the way down to the anxiety, to the fear, to the grief, to the guilt, to the doubt to the worries. And it goes all the way down to those sinful impulses that it seems like you can't do anything about. Jesus on the cross has defeated the power of sin. He's broken the power of the grave. And in the resurrection, God turns you away from all of that to see Jesus alive and victorious. Theologian and bishop N.T. Wright puts it this way, the powers that have locked up the world in corruption, decay, and death are overthrown. And Jesus is from now on running the show. Even though it doesn't look like it because we have the wrong idea of power and how it works. But if we take the New Testament seriously, we have to see the crucifixion of Jesus as the means by which God's kingdom is actually launched in this earth, because the powers are defeated and this new world comes to birth, Jesus is alive. And he greets his disciples, he blesses them with peace, he proves that he's real, and he fills them with his Holy Spirit so that they launch out with joy to turn the world upside down. All of us probably skipped when we were children. Do you remember that? Why did we stop? I mean, it's, it's easy on your knees. It's a good workout. It's actually fun. It's almost hard to frown and skip at the same time. Maybe we got too concerned with what other people think. Maybe we grew up and maybe we're just not that happy and carefree anymore. Unless we get a hold of Easter. Unless Easter gets a hold of us. See, just like 
John and, and Peter and Mary, the, the reality of the resurrection is going to come to us in different ways. It's going to come to us in different places. And, and, but no matter how you're wired, no matter where you are today, Easter tells us that Jesus is alive, that he has come back for you, that he's inviting you into his eternal kingdom. And when you get that, it sets your heart skipping and running and singing for joy. Let me pray for us. Oh, Father, help us. If we get nothing else to get this today, whatever place we're in, whatever we, we bring to this story, simple faith, struggling faith, sorrowful faith, help us get that Jesus is alive and that that would make all the difference for us. Oh, God, God, speak that truth into our hearts. Help us to believe it. Help us to respond to it. And especially today, Lord, if there are any people hearing my voice who have never come to the point of bowing the knee to Jesus at the foot of the cross and in front of the empty tomb to say Jesus is alive, I trust him, I believe him, I come to him and I give him everything in faith and hope and joy and trust. Would today be the day that that would happen? God, would that happen for all of us in a deeper way? That because Jesus is alive, you would speak a word of hope and life and joy into us and through us into a world that so desperately needs it. We pray it in the name of the risen and reigning Jesus. Amen.